I'm going to tell you the story of Sapsaro. That's an actual name. This story is a very comes from an old, 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 old German folktale. I'm not going to tell you the whole story. If you want the whole story, then you can go to Jim Henson's The Storyteller and look up Sapsaro. However, I will tell you part of the story, and I'm pretty sure by the time I'm finished with you, you are going to want to hear this story. You're going to want to watch it. It's really cool. So, can I see the next slide? Isn't she lovely? This is Princess Sapsaro. She's very beautiful. She is as beautiful on the inside as she is on the outside. Princess Sapsaro is destined to be queen of her kingdom. You would think that she would be very happy about this. However, tragedy has struck Princess Sapsaro, and she has to go incognito. She has to disguise herself, and she has to leave her kingdom, maybe forever. So it's not really a happy story for Princess Sapsaro. Bless her heart. But she uh, had two sisters, and they were not very nice, and they treated her abominably. And so I think probably leaving them probably didn't hurt her feelings too badly. But she had to leave her, lo- her, love- her loving and beloved father, the king. And it was very sad. But in order to go, she had to have a very, very good um, disguise. She had some friends, not many, but the friends that she had were loyal and true. And they were woodland creatures. They were birds. They were squirrels. They were chipmunks. They were the little creatures that they love unconditionally. And they loved Princess Sapsorrow. And they came and kept her company. They brought her fruit and everything when her sisters would not let her eat. And she was hungry. And she loved them very much. And they helped her. They helped her make the most wonderful disguise ever. And beautiful, lovely Sapsorrow became Straggletag. Straggletag left the kingdom over which she was supposed to be queen, and she went to another kingdom, and she was given a terrible job of scullery maid and goose girl. Um, she scrubbed floors. I don't know if any of you know what a scullery maid does, but she scrubbed floors, and she did the very worst of the things in the castle, in the palace. She did not complain. She worked hard. So that is what was going to become of Princess Sapsaro, except one day a very handsome prince walked down the stairs to the very bottom of the palace where Straggletag was scrubbing the floor yet again. And he said, where's the cook? And she didn't answer. He's like, oh, what are you? Ooh. And he said, okay, so you can't talk. I need the cook. And she's like, I can talk. He said, well, tell the cook that I want goose for the banquet tonight. And I want it with orange and I want it wrapped in pastry. And he was very proud. He was very handsome. And she said, she spoke to him and she chided him a little bit, which is rather unheard for. He said, you know, you shouldn't do that. That's very rude for somebody as low as you. And he gave her a little kick. He said, that's for your rudeness. Tell the cook, not only do I want goose, I want a dozen of them. And he left. So, Straggletag, of course, did what she was supposed to do, and 
she was very faithful and she she decided to find out a little more about this prince and so she put together a test and it had three parts and the parts were banquets and as she was putting this test in place and as she was kind of going through this plan she and the prince had a chance to talk, the prince and Straggletag. And every time they talked, the prince would be like, don't tell anybody we talked because, ew. And, ugh, and nobody needs to know me talking to you because you're like horrible, ugly. And um, as, as you can see, her, there were living creatures in that. So sometimes you could see like it would move because there would be, or you could see a little tail going out. Yeah, I mean, it was gross. So the, the, the prince was well and truly horrified by Straggletag. But Straggletag would, would talk to him, and Straggletag seemed to kind of understand him a little bit. And so he actually would talk to Straggletag. And, oh, but during this time, the prince found the love of his life. Oh, she was so beautiful. And she was so perfect. And she would come to visit him during banquets, and then she would run away. And he never could find out who she was. What was her name? All he knew is that he loved her and he wanted her to be his bride. And he would stop at nothing for this woman to be his bride. But where was he? All he had was Straggletag to talk to and kind of understand him. Big deal. More later. Well, we'll push pause right there. Throughout this message today, I want us to focus on the heart of this passage, which is the treasure that the Lord put in us if we are the family of God through faith in Christ and repentance of sin, we who are jars of clay. As the story brackets a point here, the beautiful sap sorrow living incognito as Scraggletack, exquisite on the inside. But on the outside, let's just say not so exquisite. But first, let me remind us as we get into the heart of this, of this message, of this passage, of where we are in Paul's story. The Lord used him to plant a church in the most wicked of all the cities in the Roman Empire. From the get-go, there were massive problems, problems of disunity, of immorality, of church order in the worship, of even denial of certain central truths, like the resurrection of the dead. Paul left Corinth after laboring there for about a year and a half to continue planting churches in other areas of the Roman Empire. Then he caught wind of some false and, in his words, satanically motivated workers who were trying to steal away the hearts and the minds of his beloved but troubled Corinthians. So there was a little competition in the church. Who would win out? Would the Corinthians follow Paul or would they follow the false teachers? And throughout this letter, the true apostle lays out his case for why the Corinthians need to follow the truth as proclaimed by Paul and not the false teachers. And Paul reminds them and us that the gospel that he gave was and is a living relationship with the living God. It's the new covenant. It's not mere religion. The new covenant gives the worshiper open access to the God of the universe. The veil that separates sinners from holy God is taken away. And that's just the beginning. 
not only are we able to behold the glory of the Lord, we are actually being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another by the Spirit of God. To God be the glory. The new covenant includes forgiveness of all sin and all abominations and all transgressions and all iniquities. The Lord, by His Spirit, writes His Torah, His ways on our hearts. He so completely transforms us that we want to serve the Lord the rest of our days. Not just a temporary thing, especially one hour on Sundays, but 24-7, 365, and 366 on leap years. And once a person experiences that kind of reality, the eyes of the heart are opened, and they are changed literally forever. Now, you know, sometimes you say, you know, I love you forever, or this is going to last forever, kind of like a meme. But no, this is reality. It will last forever. He has changed us forever. And this was Paul's heart. Now, in Paul's B.C. days, you know what that is, right, before he became a Christian? He was a God-fearing, law-abiding Jew. He thought he was right with the Lord. Paul lived his life absolutely committed to his religious beliefs until the Lord encountered him on the Damascus Road. And the glorified Christ encountered him and said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul asked him two questions. Lord, who are you? And what were you having to do? And Jesus answered his questions. He says, I'm Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. And now go into the city and you will receive further instructions. And so Saul, who later became known as Paul, was never the same. He never turned back to his old ways, even as he told the Corinthians later on in this very letter, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Literally, the old is dead. And behold, the new eternal life has come. So as we get going this morning in God's word, let's make sure that we, that you and I have encountered the true and and risen Lord Jesus. Let's make sure that our walk with the Lord is a thing of life, a thing of dynamic and not of mere religion. Let's make sure that we serve him because we love him. Why? Because he loved us first. And as we remember a couple of weeks ago, Paul reminded us of the reality of the spiritual battle. And last week, we talked about one area of the battle, and the area is abortion in all of its ugliness and everything that goes with it. And I trust that you are continuing to pray regarding this scourge in our country, which is only going to get worse if you've been listening to the newscasts. But at this point, anyway, we're not like China and other countries where the government tells us how many children that we can have in our families. We still have a choice for the time being. Let's pray and work toward the end in the field of souls and that every father, every mother would say yes to the little person in the womb and commits themselves to bringing him or her into the world. Because as we saw last week, every person who emerges from the womb is a potential worshiper of God. And isn't that true today? No matter who we see, every person either is or can be a worshiper of the true and living God. But the only ones, 
Now, so many people would say, now you're so, you're being so arrogant or whatever, you're being so exclusive. But listen to what Jesus says. He says the only ones that can worship the true and living God are Christians. Did he not say, no one comes to the Father except by me? Him. So only Christians can worship the true and living God. Everyone else is shut out. That's why they need the gospel. And again, this was Paul's ministry heartbeat. He was so profoundly changed. He gave his life to proclaim the gospel and to help others become like Jesus. And today, in our passage, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 5 to 18, we're going to see the links that Paul and his friends went through to give the gospel, as he will tell us in verses 5 to 7. In verses 8 to 15, we will see how Paul handles the fallout of his absolute passion to present the gospel of Christ. Because as Paul discovered, as does every true Christian, then and now, proclaiming the gospel is really a thing of life and death. But because of sin and rebellion, the gospel that gives eternal life is something that the vast majority of people on the planet oppose with every fiber of their being. How great is that opposition? We're going to catch a little glimpse of that today. And finally, verses 16 to 18, Paul reminds the Corinthians of his eternal perspective. Because his hope was in Christ, he was able to say with conviction that this life is not all there is. He was also able to face the reality that living in this life is not easy, even in the best of times, let alone all the opposition and the fallout that happens because of his passion to reach others with the gospel. And for Paul, Jesus, following Jesus, was his life. Nothing else mattered. Paul tasted of the good things of the life to come, and that spoiled Paul for anything that the world could offer. Paul was waiting for heaven, but he served the Lord with all that he had and all that he was while he waited to get to the other side. And so let's take a look at 2 Corinthians 4, verses 5 to 7. He says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power of God belong, surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The first thing that Paul tells us here is that his position, he describes his position as a true apostle of Christ toward the Corinthians. What is his true position? He was not trying to amass a following. He was not trying to make a name for himself as the false teachers were trying to do. What did Paul say? His position was, we're servants. We're servants. Servants of God? Well, yeah, sure, it's true that they were servants of God, but not in this verse. They were servants of the Corinthians, the the troubled Corinthians, the problem-laden Corinthians. He was their servant. They were those who spiritually took out the trash, washed their feet, cared for them without a thank you. 
He was so committed to serving them that he preached the gospel to them for free, which was a scandalous thing back then among all the the circuit of, of people who wanted to make a name for themselves, even in the religious circles. He even went around to other churches asking them for support so that he could preach the gospel to the Corinthians for free so he would not be a burden on them. And his servant attitude toward them was a badge of honor for Paul. And for the sophisticated, self-made, put-together people in Corinth and the false teachers, that was such a despised thing. Paul was willing to do the most menial of things just to gain a hearing. But remember his conviction. He was absolutely certain that the true gospel would not be accepted when he walked into Corinth that day. For both Jews and Gentiles, Jesus Christ and him crucified was a message to be avoided at all costs. Paul's attitude was that if anybody would come to Christ, it would be because of the power of God and not him. He would not change his message, though, and neither would he use clever means to soften it up to make it more palatable. No, because Paul was so taken up with the servanthood of Jesus, he discovered that that was how to gain a hearing for the gospel and for us as well. Some call it servant evangelism or relationship evangelism, or evangelism by servanthood. Pick a, pick a phrase, pick a description. But one thing that we all know, don't we? The human heart naturally has not changed. Naturally, we are all by nature servant-averse. We really don't want to serve others, do we? Now, you might be thinking, well, you don't know me very well because I love to serve other people. Well, yes, it's true in our own way, right? See, when we can call the shots and we can choose how to serve other people, we're glad and we're willing to do so, right? But when an act of service requires something that we are unwilling to part with, it's a bit more difficult, isn't it? Some love to give money, but don't dare tell them that they have to give a lot of time after work in order to serve people. For others, they can give time, but don't ask them to give money. For others, they can say, I can give you these other things, but don't dare ask me to loan you my new vehicle. Ask me about that one sometime. (laughs) The point is that very few of us give a blank check to others when it comes to servanthood. But Christ's ultimate act of servanthood consumed Paul. He was willing to do anything to be like Jesus. He said, we are your servants to make you happy. No. So that you will do what I want you to do, like come to church. No. Paul said, we are your servants for Jesus' sake. My challenge for all of us is this, for me and for all of us. Have we given a blank check to others to serve them? For Jesus' sake. Christ gave Paul and his friends the light of life, and it profoundly affected them. And Paul described it this way God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And this light, this gospel, this profound eternal dynamic is what Paul called treasure. 
Indeed, the treasure of God, eternal light, the light of life has been placed into the very center of the life of every true follower of Jesus. But how does Paul describe us? Jars of clay. Human beings. You know, it's very instructive for us to know how Adam got his name. See, Scripture refers to him as Adam, of course. And when God made him, he formed him from the dust of Adama, the ground. For Adama is Hebrew for the word ground. Hence the reason why Paul refers to every true Christian as merely a jar of clay. Ordinary, flesh and blood made from Adama, Adam, the ground. It's just like the Lord to do this. See, because there cannot be any greater of a contrast between the eternal light and temporal jars of clay. Isn't that true? The point Paul is making is simply this. Regardless of how great a person is on the human level, he or she is nothing more than a jar of clay. But those of us who have been born again, God has taken us. And what has he done? He has installed within us eternal light, the very power of God. And what God does in these clay jars is to show every other clay jar his almighty power to transform a man, a woman, a young person to reflect his very image. No religion, no self-help project, no guru can come close. All are doomed to fail. It takes divine power to transform an ordinary life to that of Christ's likeness. And when a jar of clay without divine light gets close enough to another jar with the divine light, he can see that light and the power of God is displayed. But where the power of God is present in one clay jar, there will be opposition, fallout from other clay jars and even the fallen world itself. There'll be tremendous opposition. So let's read verses 8 to 15 to see this. Paul says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what's been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. It is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Now, that's a real mouthful there. A little bit to unpack here, but let me see if we can do this. Notice first how real Paul is. The apostle is not a big fish in a small pond. He's not untouched by life's realities and his difficulties. Did you catch that? His writings contain some of the most profound things ever written by a human being. Think of 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. That came from Paul's hand as God inspired his mind to write it down. But Paul was not sequestered in some ivory tower. 
Here are some of the realities of Paul's world. Affliction of every kind. He encounters being perplexed, not always knowing what to do in a given situation. Persecution, a given. Being struck down. It was an experience of being stoned and being left for dead comes to mind here. How about getting the lash, the flagellum, not once, not twice, but five times. Beaten with rods and on and on and on. But in the reality of his pain, what does Paul say? Afflicted, yes, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Underline this. How much despair is there in our world, even among Christians? Persecuted, not forsaken. Cast down, not destroyed. The fearlessness of this man. Nothing could stop him. No affliction, no persecution. But all of this reflected Paul's painful reality. And we might ask, how could God allow? Or how could God even cause his choice servant to suffer so much? Well, let's look at it this way. When light is put inside a newly made clay jar, how many can see the light from the outside? What does a person have to do to see it? Have to look over it. But what happens if that very same clay jar develops cracks in it or holes in it? How about big cracks? Gaping holes. How much light can now be seen? How many people can see it now? And if there are enough cracks, enough holes in that jar, and the light is bright enough, what would capture the attention of the people seeing that? Would it be the jar or would it be the light? It would be the light, wouldn't it? It might be a first person seeing this jar. He might ask, who or what is holding this thing together? It's ugly. It's beat up. Worth less and less. But the light is worth everything especially if you're in the dark. Think of the many huge cracks and gaping holes in the clay jar called Paul. And later on, we're going to see how much he actually suffered. We'll go into some detail about this. But Paul seemed to have a bring-it-on mentality, didn't he? Now, I don't think that Paul was a masochist, do you? You think that he was a man who loved pain? I don't know of anybody, unless they're insane, loves pain. But for him... Paul resigned himself to this fact that when God works through a person, it will be opposed by others. That's just a given. Affliction, persecution, and all the rest just comes with the territory. But for Paul, the greater the hardship, the brighter the light that would shine from him. And that's all that mattered to him. Now, what about your life and mine? In our world, we spend so much time avoiding any inconvenience, any discomfort that we find it almost impossible to conceive that the Lord would allow us to experience hardship. And we often conclude that if we have hardship, it must not be God's will. Think of prosperity gospel. But Paul firmly embraced this. But now let's think for a moment of our past those of us especially have been living a little bit longer than others. We all have a past, though. How many of us remember the pain in our own lives? And we spend so much time 
pushing that pain away, don't we? We don't like it because it's painful. But let me encourage all of us, instead of pushing the pain away, let's embrace it. Let's embrace the painful memory. Let's embrace the painful experiences. Let's allow that to be part of our story. Let's allow it to produce in us the cracks and the holes, as it were, in our clay jar. And as we do, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ will shine forth even brighter. The truth is, if there are no cracks in our lives, or we try to make it appear that there are no cracks in our lives, very little of God's life can be seen. And that's what fellowship is for, isn't it? What if we were to be painfully honest about our stuff as we seek to embrace our hard times rather than push them away? What would our relationships look like here if we did that? I would venture to say that we would all be more authentic and we would probably be healthier here at Grace United. But now Paul goes on to say that his hardships are like death, the death of Jesus. Well, how so? Well, there's a simple but important fact that we can share here. Paul is making an honest admission, and it goes something like this. If it wasn't for the Lord, I would not suffer as I do. He's not blaming the Lord, but that's just the way it is. In other words, Paul could have lived a nice, comfortable life. See, he was at the top of his game in his B.C. days. He had tremendous, tremendous spiritual and political power. He was well-respected by so many and probably had all the perks that went along with his position in life. But all that changed when he met Jesus. From the day Paul received his first smack, as in physical smack, his first insult, the first time he had the lash applied to him or he was thrown in jail the first time for the cause of Christ, he realized then that persecution, hardship, and affliction naturally come along with the territory. His hardship was a display of death. Death to himself and the cost involved for following Christ. Did we hear this morning in Bible Fellowship time what Jesus sent his apostles out, his disciples out? He says, I send you out as what? Sheep among wolves. What do wolves do to sheep? Jesus said, I send you as sheep out there. See, but for Paul, it was absolutely worth it because it was not just a death thing. It was a death and life thing. Every bit of hardship opened up Paul's clay jar up just a little bit more so that the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ could be let out. And the more noticeable it became to all around him when that happened. And the more noticeable the light, the more people would sit up and notice. Not Paul. He was an ugly, broken, full of holes, a cracks jar. But what was inside was the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And all who saw this light blazing through Paul, through his many hardships, these people, these other clay jars had a choice to make. They could scoff and they could make fun of him, which many did. Why in the world, Paul, would you suffer so much? And Paul would simply answer, for the sake of Jesus. And I would imagine many saying this, good luck with that, and walk away. 
But sometimes the response would be, Paul, what you have is worth giving your life for. I want me some of that. So the conclusion, though Paul's ugly, shot full of holes, cracked clay jar, the treasure of God shines ever so brightly. That's why Paul was able to conclude, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. But now again, in verses 13 and 15, let's look at these again. At Paul's amazing vision for his Corinthian brothers and sisters, the apostles suffered greatly to bring them eternal light in his clay jar, just to give it here. And there are two glorious reasons why he did that. First, Paul was looking forward to the resurrection, and he wanted them there with him. Paul had hoped that God was going to raise him and them, and they were going together to celebrate the resurrection of the righteous. And time fails us to go into any detail about this. But let me encourage you just to read John chapter 5 this week in your devotions. Spend time there because you're going to see Jesus talking about this very thing. And here the Lord Jesus declared that it would be him who would call all people from the grave and resurrection. Some would be called for a resurrection of the righteous and some would be called for a resurrection of the unrighteous. This is the awesome power of the Lord Jesus. Just like Jesus called out Lazarus from the grave after he had been in there for four days, come out, Lazarus. So he's going to do the exact same thing with every person. And all of humanity at one point, no one is going to be in the grave. Jesus is going to call everybody out. And why would Paul want the Corinthian members of God's family to be called at the resurrection? Why? Would he be glad because they would have escaped hell? Well, sure. But again, let's look at verse 15 for the answer. He says, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. That's why. What's the bottom line here then? So that the Corinthian Christians and all who would become Christians through their ministry, would be able to get around the throne of God and give thanks to the Lord on that day. Now, for me, it's incredible, very instructive, I think, for all of us, too. Because what was Paul's motive in preaching the gospel? That there would be more people to give God thanks on that day. See, worship around his throne to the glory of God. That is what motivated Paul. And Paul's motive for witnessing is so that more people would worship around the throne. Now, we all can agree on this, can't we, that not going to hell is a good thing. It's a good side benefit, but that's not the primary motive why we should preach the gospel. It's so that people, more and more people will give glory and honor to the Lord around the throne on that day. And I wish we had more time to cover this, but again, the clock is so unkind. But my challenge is for all of us to think this through and then to make Paul's motive for giving the gospel your own. Make it your own. Yes, again, hell avoidance is a worthy motive for preaching the gospel. But isn't it much better to give people the gospel in hopes so that they can worship the God who made them? And finally, in verses 15 or 16 through 18, let's see Paul's eternal perspective on his own suffering he says, 
So we we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, I kind of laugh, but remember what Paul went through. He calls these things light, momentary afflictions. How about stoning, for starters? How about beaten, the lash, the loss of all things? Yes, Paul calls all these things light, momentary afflictions. But how could he see things this way? Is he crazy? Is he insane? How could he say this? Well, what's in his clay jar? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. All the hardship is so worth it in Paul's estimation. The things in this life, everything he could see, could only drag him down. Hinder him from the eternal weight of glory that far outweighs anything that this world can offer. And that even goes for the reality of our living day to day. So I don't think any of us here has, has escaped some form of bodily injury, haven't we? All of us have been hurt, haven't we? I would think. And we're just kind of plain wearing out as we get older. Now, you young folks, you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. And even though I was a boxer and ran cross country a long time ago, I still had limitations. I wasn't the best. I wasn't the fastest. But I did have a winning boxing record, though, (laughs) 13 and 12. It's great. And now I had a hip replaced about 10 years ago, and that's kind of wearing out, too. So I can forget about running. I forget, forget about boxing. And all of us are wearing out. But the other side is waiting for us. Jesus said he will make all things new. And the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ is just a foretaste of glory divine. How this encouragement from Paul and his friends ought to motivate us to put aside lesser things, to get ready for heaven and to effectively serve the Lord while we wait for him to take us there. We do live in this life. We are in this world, but we're not of this world. Since the day Paul faced or first tasted heavenly things, nothing could satisfy him then. Several years after Paul wrote this letter, he was able to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But whatever happened to Sapsaro, a.k.a. Straggletag? Poor Straggletag. Throughout this test that Straggletag is putting the prince through, Straggletag fell in love. She fell in love with her prince. Only he wasn't her prince. When he looked at her, it was like, ew. But it was time. It was time for the final test. Now Straggletag knew a secret that the prince did not know. And the prince threw the part of the story. I'm not going to tell you because it takes too long. Look it up. 
comes down to this. There is a golden slipper. Now, instantly, everybody knows what I'm talking about, especially if you're female. (laughs) There's a golden slipper. And the prince has put out a decree. Whoever, whatever maiden fits this golden slipper, I will marry. And she will become a princess. How? So everybody in the kingdom, and not just their kingdom, but other kingdoms for miles and miles around, all the maidens of all the different lands come to try and fit that slipper. And nobody can fit the slipper. Huzzah! And down in the bottom, scrubbing the floor, straggle tag can, is listening to all the stuff. And the, and the other servant's going, wow, there's a line out there and nobody fits. And he's really getting upset. And he, oh my goodness, it's a thing. So, so then one of the other servants goes, well, how about you, our little beauty? Are you going to try too? She's like, I might. So she did. So she went upstairs. She went upstairs, which she was not allowed to do. And our little struggle tag with the mice running in and out of her garb stands, walks into the room. And there's the prince sitting in the chair, dejected. I'm never going to find the love of my life. And there's two last girls that are trying to fit that slipper on their feet. They are the princess's bad sister. Literally, that was their name, princess bad sister. Her own sister's trying to shove their feet into her, into that, um, into that slipper. So she watches and she lets them go through their little thing and she's kind of off to the side and it doesn't work. And it's funny. It's, you're going to love it when you see it. It's really hysterical. And, um, and then she stands up and she says, I claim my right to try on that slipper. And the, the bad sister's going, ew, what is that? Ugh, get it out of here. Ew, it's a thing. And the prince goes, that's struggle tag. And she walks up and she says, well, he says, it is your right. And you can try on the slipper. So she walks up and her fur-covered foot goes right into that slipper. It fits perfectly. And the two sisters are about to pass out. And she looks up at the prince who's looking at her. And the look on his face is, oh, my. And she says one sentence. Will you keep your promise? And silence falls on the room. He thinks about it a second. Just a very short second, especially as the bad sisters, the princess bad sisters are going, oh, no, 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 you better not. You better not. Just marry us. And um, he says, I will keep my promise and I will marry you. Okay. So then everybody's like, what? Are you kidding me? Well, all of a sudden they hear a noise and through the windows and through the doors come all the woodland creatures, birds and chipmunks and squirrels. And they come and they they overcome and they, they cover straggle tag and they're poking and they're picking and they're doing this and feathers are flying and furs flying and Ed, the furs flying. <laughs> and, and, and the prince is going, okay. And, and, and it's going on, it's going on. And finally, finally, when the dust settles, if you will, and all the woodland creatures go away and standing before him is the most beautiful princess he had ever laid eyes on. 
and he knew that she was the one who had come to him during the banquets, and he had fallen in love with her. But who was she? So the two bad sisters are standing there with their mouths down on the floor, and they're going, Sap sorrow! Ow! And they walked out of the room. It was Princess Sapsaro, as beautiful on the inside as she was on the outside. But she wasn't very beautiful on the outside for a while, but that didn't change how beautiful she was on the inside. And the prince had passed the test. Sandra? And the prince got the love of his life, and the beautiful Sapsaro was able to be who she really was, and they lived happily ever after. Isn't that a great fairy tale? The prince made his choice. Somehow he saw through the very ugly, good for nothing in his own estimation. Scraggle tag. And when he did, he discovered to his unspeakable delight everything he could ever want. His princess, Sapsaro, in front of him. You know, for all the affliction and hardship and extreme pushback against the temple jars of clay containing eternal light, it is that light that people really do want. But they've hardened their hearts. They've been satanically blinded. And all the while, those without eternal light are desperate to find cheap substitutes to fill their clay jars. They will try any light anywhere to light their way, but to their dismay, every light will go out. But God created us, every one of us, for a purpose. And it's summed up so well in the statement found in Westminster Catechism. We said it before, but it's definitely worth repeating. And even better, worth living out. What is the chief end of man? Why did God create us in the first place? The catechism asked that question. Very first question in that catechism, about 150 questions. And the question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that, my brothers and sisters, is why we soldier on. That's why we give people the gospel in spite of pushback, in spite of opposition. That's why we ourselves overcome all hardships, considering every difficulty every affliction, every persecution as preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that makes even the very best in this life pale into absolute and utter insignificance. We are to look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. May we live as the Lord created us to truly glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. And may today be the beginning of our forever. Let's pray. Lord, in a very real sense, the gospel is a love story. A story of how you, as the prince, came to seek us. Actually, how the Father has come to seek us. Lord Jesus, even as you said to the Samaritan woman, God seeks worshipers. 
and by your spirit, Lord. You've sent your spirit out and you are now convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And all those who respond, because all of us have the ability to respond to the convicting work of the spirit. Lord, those who respond, repentance and hearing the gospel, we come into the family and we are then loved We are loved like we've never been loved before. Lord, we thank you for your everlasting love. We thank you for your care for us. We thank you, Lord, that you fill our hearts with with everything that we need. Lord, we cannot ask for more. So I ask God that you would help us. Help us to enjoy you. Help us to glorify you. Help us to love you as you define love. Not as the world defines love. Help us to love you, Lord, because you've loved us first. You always take initiative. Because, Lord, in of ourselves, we would not do that. We would turn away. But what we have in you is what we all want, what we so desperately need. So I pray that you would help us as your people to give the gospel to those who don't really care to listen. But Lord, your spirit convicts them. And Lord, I pray that in hopes that as your spirit convicts and as we give the gospel, they will come into the kingdom. And Lord, we'll give you thanks for that involvement, for that small part that we can play. Help us, Lord, overcome the obstacles, the difficulties, the hardships, so that we may give the gospel to those who so desperately need it and help us to live it out as well. Lord, to enjoy the gospel that you've given us, the salvation that you've given us. I pray now, Lord, as we turn our attention now to the singing again, to give you the praise, the glory, the honor that you alone deserve, and also our giving, I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to do these things as an act of worship to you, again, because you alone deserve it, in Jesus' name.